This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm excited today to be joined by Dr. Mike Hughes, Michael Hughes. He's the president, CEO of the Summa Barberton Campus, Health Campus, Hospital System. Dr. Hughes, can you take a moment to introduce yourself? Then I'll talk to you about COVID-19, about strategy, about priorities, and more. And thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much, Scott. I appreciate the opportunity to participate with your um, podcast. I, um, I'm an interventional cardiologist by training. I um, practiced interventional cardiology for almost 25 years in the Akron, Ohio area. I um, led a 23-person cardiovascular group. We actually merged with another group back in 2007 here in town and then uh, transitioned to an employment model. I attained my MBA in 2012 and led the Cardiovascular Institute at Summa Health uh, from 2014 through 2016, and then assumed the president's position at Summa Barberton um, Hospital Campus in 2016. I'm also the president of the Cardiovascular Service Line as a senior administrator over that uh, service line. You know, the, the COVID thing has turned our world upside down, just like it has many others. But it has also opened up some great opportunities. And I look forward to kind of talking you through some of the things that we've identified that we want to uh, leverage going forward as we come out of this COVID pandemic. Well, well, well thank you. And before we do that, take a moment and talk about the transition from, you know, full-time practicing interventional cardiologist to health system leadership and, and administrative leadership and just leadership. I mean, you've always been a leader, but talk about the movement between professional practice and, and health system leadership. Yeah, it's um, first off, I was scared to when I made that decision to make that move. It was a little bit of an anxiety provoking um, time in my life. Although uh, one of my patients probably spurred me along more than anything else. And I was sitting in the office one afternoon talking to this gentleman and, you know, he looked me in the eyes and he said, you know, doc, you could, you know, you saved a lot of lives in the cath lab one at a time, but if you take your abilities and put that into a position where you can influence so many other physicians, think of the multitude of lives that you'd be able to impact by doing the right thing and driving working relationships and collaboration and the things that you've always tried to do in your private practice. And honestly, that was one of the driving forces that made me make the jump is that I did want to make a difference. Um, Barberton is a unique situation in that it is a community hospital as part of a larger hospital system, which is Summa Health. And Barberton has always been a community hospital. This is a smaller hospital. We have about 250 licensed beds. And I just really, I, I fell in love with this hospital when I came here to practice in 2008. And it's very similar to the hometown I grew up in in Anderson, South Carolina, in that the the geographic location is totally different, Northeast Ohio versus Western South Carolina, but the socioeconomic status is almost identical. And I really felt like I was able to give back to a community that's very similar to the one I grew up in. And that is very professionally satisfying that I, I honestly believe that I've been able to make a difference. We've made 
some great strides in developing community relationships and in building new programs. I've evolved the, the, the hospital itself into a more focused, ambulatory focused type um, access point for the, for the community here. So I do think that, um, you know, I have been able to make a difference and that that's what gets me up in the morning. If I feel like I can make a difference, then I'm I'm all for it and trying to go after everything I can. So they, that that piece of it, it is scary getting out of my comfort zone. I was very good at what I did in the cath lab. I love doing it and I miss it. I miss that that taking care of those acute heart attacks when they roll in the door. I don't miss taking care of them at two in the morning and having to get up and work all day the next day. So that part of it has been somewhat good, but it is, um, there are, there are great things about being an interventional physician as well as there are great things about being, um, an administrator with a physician and clinical background. I think that gives me a unique, uh, credibility, with a lot of the staff and with the uh, other physicians in particular, but you have to build that trust to when you move from those two different areas. You can be trusted as an interventional cardiologist, but when you move into the administrative position, you got to re-earn that trust from a different perspective. And and I think that is something that that I've been able to navigate uh, fairly well. And I'm very proud of the things that we've been able to accomplish here. Um, a lot of the folks that, that I have that are working with me now, I have worked with in the past in various different um, career paths we have crossed. And so there's a familiarity there with each other. And I think that makes a big difference, too, as far as getting things done and being nimble and making decisions and getting things moving and keeping things moving. So does that help? Thank you. 100%. Let me ask you two quick questions as follows up. As follows. One is, you know, back in the day when I was a young professional, I was not a physician, obviously, but worked with a lot of physicians. And, and there was this real us versus them position amongst physicians and hospital leaders. That seems to have become less so the last 20 years or so. You know, but, but was there a feeling of, you know, when you when you change from being a physician full time and you'll always be a physician to being a hospital leader, that you were changing teams at all? Or was it a naturally easy transition? Um, for me, it was naturally easy, um, and and I think others though that I have seen have struggled with that transition. Um, I look at it as it's a it's a personal relationship first, and then you you figure out. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with transparency too. If you put the cards on the table in front of people, and you talk to physicians as um, as the smart. Uh, entrepreneurial bent type people that the most of the independent physicians are, are this day and time, they respect you and they will listen to you. So I think having that insight and that um, emotional intelligence to, to be able to ascertain what's going on in a meeting, I think that, that goes a long ways toward helping build those relationships. And that's what it's about is the, is the building that trust. Um, it's you know it you know it it can be ta- it can be daunting though yes and let me ask you another question you you hear so much about physician burnout today and rightfully so almost anybody that does think the stress level consistently for thirty plus years hits that burnout or has trouble or most people do do you think the career transition from 
practicing physician full-time to leadership helped you keep things interesting, helped you evolve and grow yourself? Well, I've always been one that, that loved to learn. I mean, I, um, I have to credit my wife with me going back and getting my MBA because when, when I was running our 23-man group, I mean, I was reading as much business material and, you know, business um, books around management styles and, and trying to self-educate um, around how to better manage our, our group. And she, uh, you know, she sat me down. I never forget it was one Sunday night, and she sat me down and says, "Listen, you're spending all this time. You don't have a, a real structured format of how you're going to get this done and how you're going to learn these things. Why don't you go back and get into a program where you get an MBA, you get some street credit in the business arena, then because you've got the papers to prove that you went back, you studied, and you tried to master this." Then and then you'll be able to sit at the board table. People will respect you. They'll have they'll have an understanding of what it is they need to see and what it is that you have that you can better explain to them what it is your clinical expertise can offer in various settings. And she was very right on. And I went. I finished my MBA in twenty in two thousand twelve. And it was, you know, when I first started, I have to tell you, a lot of the stuff that we did, I was a pure, I had never done any type of business education, formal education at all. It had all been science from the first day I started in college until I finished until, you know, that point in time. And to start out with some of the what I used to call the touchy-feely things, so looking at yourself, evaluating your own personality traits, learning how to um, evaluate what others are are thinking of you, and what other, and trying to figure out the the setting and the what's going on in a meeting, and and just more than anything, understanding more about myself and my own motivations and how to address those. I learned more about myself in those two years than than I will ever than ever before, and some of it is because that I was in a more mature stage in my life. I know I understand that piece of it, but I also learned about things about what makes me tick and what makes me work, and and I think that that going into that and doing that MBA was extremely beneficial to me. It got, when I first started, it was like, oh no, I gotta write another paper about this. By the end of it, I was looking so forward to going to those classes and meeting with my teammates. And you know, to this day, it's been eight years, we still, two or three of us, stay in touch with each other at least once or twice a week. Um, it was just, it was, that was, it was fun and, and I love to learn, but I learned so much about myself doing that. And it doesn't have to be an MBA. There are other uh, types of uh, business type courses that people can take, but I credit my wife with, with, um, you know, charging me with doing that and making a difference. And I did that for two years while I was practicing full-time as an interventional cardiologist. And it wasn't easy on me or my family life, but it was well worth it, I have to tell you. I, I bet. That's fantastic. Let me ask you one final question. Talk to us a moment about COVID-19 and things that the system is getting better at because of it or lessons from it. Anything you could add there? 
Yeah, so a couple of things, just some bullet points. You probably heard this from other folks as well, but you know, the COVID-19 has really revealed some discrepancies in access to care, especially in some of our more vulnerable populations. We have a large Nepalese population here in the Akron area and Barberton area, and you know, multi-generations live in the same house. We have, you know, the, are the the individuals of color. We've got group homes. We've got extended care facilities. There are a lot of discrepancies in our abilities to take care and manage a pandemic like this have been uncovered. Um, you know, we actually had a shut, complete shutdown of our ambulatory surgery for two months, and that had a significant bottom line impact. We furloughed about 600 people at the peak of our furlough. We are now recalling many of those. Um, the other thing that we saw is a 28% drop in our acute heart attacks coming to the hospital. Nationally, it's somewhere between 30 and 40%, um, depending on what data you look at, that are deferring care, um, you know, cardiovascular care due to COVID fear. And for a new cancer diagnosis, it's as much as 45% drop in new cancer diagnosis and stroke is down about 30% across the nation. So the one thing that you know, that that has had a finance, significant financial impact on our um, situation here, on our organization. Uh, we're about a $1.4 billion organization, and we're looking at about a $48 million projected forecasted loss for the end of the year. Um, we also, you know, what we've done to try to mitigate that is a lot of the people that we're hearing as far as coming back, are afraid to come back to the hospital because they're afraid of catching COVID in the hospital. And we've been um, very intentional about getting in front of the media, doing radio talk shows, having marketing uh, on TV and radio about um, public service announcements that it's safe to return to the hospital for care. We're practicing social distancing. We're doing hand washing. Uh, everyone has to wear a mask that comes in the door. I mean, in in our area here, it's a lot safer to come to the hospital than it is to go to the grocery store. Because if you think about it, in the grocery store around here, 50% of the people wear a mask. Everybody's touching all the vegetables and fruit and everything. And then you're going in there and touching them and picking them up again. And it's just a lot safer to be in the hospital where everybody's mandatory to wear a mask than it is to be, you know, in the grocery store. The, um, you know, we are also looking at... Um, as we reopen, you know, we identified um, some gaps in coverage, and we've been listening to the community, been listening to our patients and um, our providers and some of the – and our staff, our employees as well. We're trying to access the needs in both of the organization, the needs of the community, and, you know, what do our providers need? Because they got hurt really bad with people not coming to the office, and this COVID thing really hit a lot of people. So we're doing, we're trying to listen to people, figure out what it is we can do to work with them to help them. Um, one of the things that I will tell you that, that we have learned is that telemedicine um, is going to be here to stay. And depending on how the regulatory um, situation falls out over the next several months, we'll tell the tale of how um, – how much penetration is going to be with telemedicine long term. But some of the things that we're dealing with, we have, as a lot of hospitals do, difficult times getting neurologists or an ophthalmologist or some other subspecialties 
to come to the hospital to see patients are they're stretched so thin they they come once a day and if somebody comes in right after they leave then they're here two days before they get seen and we're looking at and we have been using during covid um, iPads to do telemedicine and real-time consults on the inpatients with specialists that are um, away from the hospital, that are outside the hospital. And it has markedly improved the efficiency of care and I believe improved the level of care that our patients are receiving. So there are some things with telemedicine that we are looking to incorporate. Another example is um, pre-surgical testing. Um, a lot of times when the patient comes in for pre-surgical testing, they, they come up with an abnormal EKG or they, they complain of some chest pains. Well, that's an automatic cancellation of the surgery. They get sent home. They call the primary care physician. They got to try to get in to see a cardiologist to get cleared. You're talking about two or three week delays. What we've done is implemented a real-time consult. So if a need for a pre-op clearance occurs, they pick up the phone and call the cardiologist and they do a real-time hookup um, pre-admission pre testing uh, hookup with a physician's assistant or doc who's doing the pre-admission testing and they do the consult right then with the patient and the um, person that's making the request for the consult. You make a decision, do they, you know, can they be cleared or not? And if they can't, what testing needs to be done, it gets ordered, it gets followed up, and the patient's taken care of without ever having to go into an office. Um, you know, and they can be cleared in a matter of days instead of three or four weeks sometimes. So there are a lot of good things I think that we can learn from this COVID experience that we had to use because telemedicine was, you know, People were getting into it kicking and screaming because it was different. It was new. But when they had no other option, they learned how to use it. And now we're learning how to expand the use to make it more efficient, um, more to provide more efficient care for patients and get them through the system in a more economical way than having multiple you know, doctor's visits to get somebody cleared for surgery. That's just one example. Um, and there are others that we've come up with as well. Um, does that it's, answer you? Yes, no, that's fantastic. I, I tell you, it's a fascinating sort of like, fascinating story that you hear across the country that, on COVID-19 and the different ways it impacts different families, different socioeconomic groups. Like you talked about the Nepalese in your area who live in multi-generational houses, much more spread, many more challenges, different issues. It's really fascinating to see how these things impact different fields differently and also how it impacts practices differently. If you're a proceduralist, we're basically out of business for a few months and now sort of ramping back up. I want to tell you, Dr. Hughes, a remarkable professional journey. It is great to get a chance to visit with you today. Uh, we're on with Dr. Hughes, president of the Summa Barberton Hospital System or Health Campus in uh, Ohio. And just a great pleasure visiting with you today, Dr. Hughes. Thank you very much. And thank you. I appreciate the time and I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.